The lecture is named for B. Kenneth Simon, who was an industrialist in Pittsburgh, who served in World War II, was um, a graduate of Cornell University Engineering School, was an entrepreneur, uh, and um, a self-made man in many respects. And he was a great student of the American founding. And as a result, he saw the work that we were doing here at Cato in the Center for Constitutional Studies, took a great liking to it, joined us in various of our events that um, we hold for benefactors uh, from time to time. And in the course of that, uh, decided that he wanted to make a substantial contribution, which he did in the form of the B. Kent Assignment Chair, which I'm honored to hold. And the endowment served also as the source of the B. Kent Simon lectures over the years. This year, um, we are honored to have Judge Santel. He is an old friend of the Cato Institute. In fact, back in 1990, at a conference that we had on RICO, which is the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, he gave the luncheon address, which was entitled RICO, the monster that ate jurisprudence. Uh, he did not treat the statute with great uh, respect, and rightly so. In any event, he, is, um, he was appointed to the United States uh, Circuit uh, uh, judge in October of 1987 by President Ronald Reagan, and he served as chief judge from February 11, 2008, when Judge Ginsburg stepped down from that position until February 11, 2013, when he took senior status. He's a graduate uh, with honors of the uh, University of North Carolina Law School, and he served with distinction in a variety of legal careers in the state of North Carolina. He, uh, following law school, uh, practiced with the firm of Uzel and Dumont, until he became an assistant U.S. attorney in, North, in Charlotte, North Carolina, in 1970. From 74 to 77, he served uh, in, as a North Carolina state district judge, but left the bench in 77 to become a partner with the firm of Tucker, Hicks, Santel, Moon, and Hodge. In 1985, uh, he joined the U.S. district court, so he has been both a uh, state district court judge and a federal district court judge for the Western District of North Carolina in Asheville, where he served until his appointment to the D.C. Circuit. Judge Santel was a presiding judge of the Special Division for the purpose of appointing independent counsels from 1992 to 2006. He also served as the chair of the U.S. Judicial Conference's Executive Committee from 2010 to 2013. <clears throat> and he serves as president of the Edward Bennett Williams Inn of the American Inns of Court. This evening, he's going to be talking to us on freedom of the press, a liberty for all, or privilege for some. Please welcome Judge David Sentel. Thank you, Roger. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Roger, and thank you to the Cato Institute for this opportunity. I will apologize first for being out of uniform. Uh, nonetheless, I'm going forward. I will preface also that I am not going to give full citations to much of anything because they add to length and do not add to interest, so nobody wants to hear them. So when I name a case, I will usually finish with the name, unless there's some good reason. I name an article, I give you enough to find it by. Freedom of the press, is that a liberty for all or a privilege for a few? Roger asked me some months ago to give this lecture. to speak on something related to liberty, and that was the one that came to my mind. And I thought back that on the 17th of September in 1787, 17th of September, the Constitutional Convention sent forth a proposed constitution that became recognized over the ages as the greatest governing document in the history of the world providing for liberty and equality. It contained in it a provision that no title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8. 
The original Constitution did not provide enough protection for liberty and equality to satisfy some Americans of the day, and two years and eight days later, the new Congress transmitted to the state legislatures 12 proposed amendments, 10 of which were ratified effective December 15, 1791. The Fifth Amendment provided for the protection of due process of law, which is generally recognized as containing an equal protection concept applicable to protect citizens from the unequal operation of federal law, comparable to the later 14th Amendment provision concerning the states. See Bowling v. Sharp. See also United States v. Windsor. More directly to the point, the First Amendment to the Constitution provided, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Amendment 1, and in this great amendment, the framers and ratifiers of the Constitution provided for what has become known as the five freedoms, that is, the freedom of speech, press, religion, petition, and assembly. The question I address today is, to whom does the Constitution afford these freedoms, or at least one of them? Omitting the one as to which question may have arisen, let us examine the other four first as to speech, while the time, place, and manner of speech may be restricted, freedom of speech belongs to every citizen. This view, as set forth by Justice Brandeis in Whitney versus California, springs from the proposition that under the First Amendment, the public has a right to every man's views, and every man has the right to speak. American Communication Association v. Dowd. While some cases may have cast doubt on that proposition, including American Communications, Association. In the end, it is generally accepted that every person, I'm saying person now, I'm abandoning the sexist language, has the same protection for free speech as any other. As to the freedom of religion, the constitutional protection of religious liberty extends not only to the professional clergy, not only to the adherents of the majority faith, but liberty and social stability demand a religious tolerance that respects the views of all citizens, quoting McCreary County, Kentucky, the ACLU. The Free Exercise Clause provides and protects religious freedom not only to, for the adherents of the majority religion, but even to the practitioners of rituals that may seem abhorrent to some. Church of Lukumi, Baba Louie. Yeah. The Supreme Court has recently stated, religious beliefs need not be acceptable, logical, consistent, or comprehensible to others in order to merit First Amendment protection. That's Thomas versus Review Board. Unquestionably, the Free Exercise Clause provides religious liberty to all, not to a favored class. Freedom to petition. Like the other clauses, the First Amendment protection of the right to petition for the grievances, redress of grievances, extends to all. As the Supreme Court has reminded us, the First Amendment protects the right of even corporations to petition, I put the even in there myself, to petition legislative and administrative bodies, Citizens United. Freedom of assembly. Again, the First Amendment protects the freedom of all to assemble. In NAACP versus Alabama, the Supreme Court recognized the availability of that protection to all Without regard to the assembler's identity, they did not need to be members of any particular group. Indeed, the Freedom of Assembly Clause protects those who wish to assemble in privacy and with anonymity. The Freedom of Assembly belongs to all. And yet in the face of all the evidence of egalitarianism and the protection of universal right, there is an insistence among some that the First Amendment, by providing that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press, created a special class of privileged persons bearing the title of nobility, the press, as opposed to creating an equal protection for everyone who uses a communication method known as the press, paralleling the freedom of speech afforded to all by the two words separating from the press by only a comma in the First Amendment. <clears throat> of course, the first question in determining whether the press refers to a method of communication or a privileged class of communicators is, what did the framers intend in the adoption of the Bill of Rights? The First Amendment, along with the rest of the 
Bill of Rights was added to the Constitution after the Anti-Federalists objected to the absence of such a listing of rights in the original Constitution. One of the Anti-Federalist objections was captured well by James Lincoln, a delegate to the South Carolina Convention that considered the Constitution in 1788. That delegate from the town of 96, South Carolina, stood to ask why the freedom of the press was not guaranteed in the Constitution, memorably stating, the liberty of the press is the tyrant scourge. It was the true friend and firmest supporter of civil liberty. Therefore, why pass it by in silence? That's from Eliot, the debates in the several states. The Federalists eventually agreed to the adoption of the Bill of Rights, passing the First Amendment that prescribes laws abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. So what does the press, the phrase the press refer to in the First Amendment? Well, the first conception is that the press refers to the media as an institution, that it's a type of fourth branch that provides an independent check on the three branches of government. The most famous expositor of that view was perhaps Justice Potter Stewart. Justice Stewart explained his view in a 1974 lecture at Yale Law School. According to him, the free press clause extends protection to an institution. The publishing business is, in short, the only organized private business that is given explicit constitutional protection. This basic understanding is essential, I think, to avoid an elementary error of constitutional law. It is tempting to suggest that the freedom of the press means only that newspaper publishers are guaranteed freedom of expression. <clears throat> they are guaranteed that freedom, to be sure. But so are we all because of the free speech clause. If the free press guarantee meant no more than freedom of expression, it would be a constitutional redundancy. Between 1776 and the drafting of our Constitution, many of the states contained clauses protecting freedom of the press while at the same time recognizing no general freedom of speech. By including guarantees in the First Amendment, the founders quite clearly recognized a distinction between the two. In setting up the three branches of the federal government, the founders of deliberately created an internally competitive system. The primary purpose of the constitutional guarantee of a free press was a similar one, to create a fourth institution outside the government as additional check on the three official branches. The irrelevant metaphor, I think, is the metaphor of the fourth estate. Potter Stewart, excuse me, the relevant metaphor, Potter Stewart, or of the press, which was reprinted in 26 Hastings Law Journal. The second conception, is that the words, the press, refer to the press as a medium of communication. Under this interpretation, the freedom of the press protects all individuals' written expression and is complementary to the freedom of speech. The well-known expositor of this view is Chief Justice Warren Burger, who wrote in response to the press as institution view of Stewart, I perceive two fundamental difficulties with a narrow reading of the press clause. First, although certainty on this point is not possible, the history of the clause does not suggest that the authors contemplated a special or institutional privilege. Most pre-First Amendment commentators who employed the term freedom of, press, freedom of speech with great frequency used it synonymously with freedom of the press. Those interpreting the press clause as extending protection only to or creating a special role for the institutional press must either A, assert such an intention on the part of the framers for which no supporting evidence is available, or B, argue that events after 1791 somehow operated to constitutionalize this interpretation, or C, candidly acknowledging the absence of historical support suggests that the intent of the framers is not important today. The second fundamental difficulty with interpreting the press clause as conferring special status on a limited group is one of definition. The very task of including some entities within the institutional press while excluding others, whether undertaken by legislature, court, or administrative agency, is reminiscent of the abhorred licensing system of Tudor and Stuart England, a system that the First Amendment was intended to ban from this country. In short, the First Amendment does not belong to any definable category of persons or entities. It belongs to all who exercise its freedom. Chief Justice Berger from First National Bank of Boston. Perhaps it is this problem of definition raised by Chief Justice Berger that best illustrates the difficulty 
with the proposition that freedom of the press protects a class of persons rather than all persons. Such a view raises the question, who will define the class? Does it not seem at least passing strange that a constitution which explicitly refuses to establish a religion would at the same time establish a professional class? Does it not seem at least passing strange that such a constitution would afford the right to every citizen to express his or her views in speech, but the moment that citizen chose to commit those thoughts to writing, that constitutional protection would vanish unless the speaker writer belonged to a privileged profession? Now, I will interrupt the flow of my remarks on this subject to add that I am aware that Congress is currently considering this definitional problem under the rubric of a shield statute. As to that, I will only say that I'm not here to address the statutory problem, but only the constitutional. Now, back to the original. <laughs> Various justices and commentators have echoed Berger's concern with how we would define the press if we adopt the press's institution interpretation. In Dunn and Bradstreet v. Greenmoss, Justice Brennan in dissent, joined by Marshall, Blackman, and Stevens, rejected the view that the free speech clause is limited to media entities because it is irreconcilable with First Amendment principles that protect speech regardless of its origin and because it would be impossible to define media entities. Justice White concurred with the dissent on that point, and the plurality in that case did not reject it, so that turns the decision on the majority turned the decision on the distinction between libelous speech in matters of private concern and libelous speech in matters of public concern. But the class definition problem created by the press's institution interpretation underscores its erroneous nature. It would seem axiomatic that the First Amendment creates an open marketplace in which differing ideas about political, economic, and social issues can compete freely for public acceptance without government interference. Knox v. Service Employees. Indeed, the protection of political speech has been repeatedly described by the Supreme Court as the core of the First Amendment. See Brown v. Hartledge. At the core of the First Amendment, there are certain basic concepts about the manner in which political discussion in a representative democracy should proceed. How, then, is it consistent with First Amendment values to entrust the determination of the scope of the free, speech, free press protection to the political entities which the framers hoped citizens would be free to criticize, challenge, or advise. How would such an allocation of protection proceed? Would Congress or some new undersecretary of the press decide who is entitled to this freedom of speech? Freedom of the press, excuse me. Could the president make a recess appointment to the official press? <laughs> the definitional problem poses an insurmountable hurdle to the press's institution interpretation. Before I go further, I want to note that debate, the debate is not academic. The case, cases do arise that make a difference. For example, in the North Carolina Board of Dietetics Nutrition threatened to send a blogger to jail for describing his battle against diabetes and encouraging others to use his diet and lifestyle as an example. The blogger used his website to describe his experience on the paleo diet, which apparently is also known as the caveman or hunter-gatherer diet. On every page of his blog, he includes the words, I am not a doctor, dietitian, or nutritionist. In fact, I have no medical training of any kind. But the board conducted a line-by-line -line red ink review of the web blog site, citing specific words and phrases as impermissible and telling him to remove those lines on penalty of jail. For instance, the board objected to the blogger providing his daily meal plan on the ground that non-licensed individuals cannot recommend diets to others. <laughs> Accordingly, according to the board, the blogger has a First Amendment right to blog about his diet, but he can't encourage others to adopt it, unless the state has certified him as a dietitian or nutritionist. The board's director also explained that they would be less likely to prosecute a writer who blogs about vegetarian diets because a vegetarian is not really like a medical diet. That's a quote. <laughs> Apparently, the hunter-gatherers came up with a medical diet long before penicillin. <laughs> I don't know much about caveman diets or dinosaur diets or any other diets, actually. <laughs> I, 
I do know that the North Carolina Board's licensing requirements, as applied to this blog, sound suspiciously like the abhorred press licensing requirements of old England that Justice Berger mentioned. And unless the North Carolina Board has threatened the authors of many books on the Amazon bestseller list, the Board seems to be applying a different You may have lost my place of standard to bloggers who write about diets than it does to professional authors who write about diets. The bloggers sued in the Western District of North Carolina, my old district, and after the district court dismissed his claims on justiciability grounds, he appealed to the Fourth Circuit, was represented by the Institute for Justice and supported by the Amicus Civil Liberties Union. The Fourth Circuit determined, rightly, that the claims should have been analyzed under First Amendment standing framework. This is Cooksey v. Fattrell. The Fourth Circuit panel that included the Honorable Sandra Day O'Connor sitting by designation determined that his claim was justiciable and right and remanded the case for appropriate consideration of his First Amendment claim. While properly analyzing the First Amendment framework, the Cooksey decision sub silentio highlights another issue. The Cooksey panel generally analyzed the blogger's communications under a freedom of speech analysis without distinguishing freedom of the press. Now, this highlights the fact that the analysis of freedom of the press involves not only a determination of who enjoys the freedom, but also what means of communication are covered. That is, is the internet, and for that matter, television, a medium for exercising freedom of the press or freedom of the speech or what? If we consider freedom of the press to protect all communications rather than the privilege given an institution, it doesn't matter. If we consider it to protect the activities of a certain class, then it does matter. Under the institutional view, if the blogger not only committed through the, communicated through the internet, but either he or a follower printed out his blog and distributed the printed copies, then the protection would extend to him only if he were an employee of the New York Times or some other representative of the established press. Well. Back to the general proposition that under the First Amendment, the, I'm taking a little time because it's a little hard to move my papers sometimes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Back to the general proposition that under the First Amendment, the Constitution protects bad ideas as well as good. Only through the competition of ideas can we determine which ideas are in fact good. Justice Holmes famously said, the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas, where the best test of truth is the power of thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. That was in dissent in Abrams v. United States. The question we confront today is whether it also protects all the purveyors of those ideas, regardless of their identity, or whether they have an affiliation with the elite media. All right. Back to the point of the press as originally understood. As I noted earlier, our basic goal is to determine the original meaning of the Constitution. The press as an institutional elite view is inconsistent with the original public meaning of the First Amendment. History supports Berger's view of freedom of the press as extending to all citizens. In the late 18th century, state Supreme Courts, state constitutions, and commentators uniformly revered to every man or every free man or every citizen's expressive rights, usually using words like those in the Kentucky Constitution of 1792, every citizen may freely speak, write, and print on any subject, being responsible for the abuse of that liberty. And I would say, See also generally Eugene Bollock's article, Freedom for the Press as an Industry or for the Press as a Technology in the Pennsylvania 160 Pennsylvania Law Review. Now, the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 shows freedom of the press described the individual rights of writing and publishing, the people, quoting that the people have a right, the people have a right to freedom of speech and of writing and publishing their sentiments. Therefore, the freedom of the press ought not to be restrained. Noah Webster's 1928, excuse me, 1828 dictionary defined under the word press the, quote, liberty of the press in civil policy as the free rights of publishing books, pamphlets, or papers without previous restraint or the unrestrained right which every citizen enjoys of publishing his thoughts and opinions subject only to punishment for publishing what is pernicious to morals or the peace of the state. There's a story in his commentaries on the Constitution. 
described the First Amendment as providing that every man shall have the right to speak, write, and print his opinions on any subject whatsoever without any prior restraint, so always that he does not injure any other person. Three-story commentary. The original meaning of the press then was not limited to an institution called the press. The idea that the freedom of the press was intended to protect a right of all people is consistent with the structure of the publishing industry in the late 18th century. There were no large media conglomerates, few journalists as we now conceive of them, but there were individual authors who paid independent printers to print their pamphlets in small newspapers. See Thomas's concurrence in McIntyre v. Ohio elections. Pamphlets were written by amateur writers who held other occupations as lawyers, ministers, merchants, or planters. See Edward Lee on freedom of the press. For instance, one of the most successful uses of a printing press in America at the founding, and indeed during all of our history, was Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense. Paine paid a printer to print the pamphlet anonymously and then donated all proceeds and his copyright to the United States for the cause of independence. According to his biographer Conway, Peace found him a penniless patriot who might easily have had 50,000 pounds in his pocket at the time. Payne was certainly not a member of any institutional press. He was by trade an excise officer and later a bridge designer. He had been a corset fitter very early in his career. Yet his 1809 biographer wrote that common sense was entirely unexampled in the history of the press. Thomas Payne was exercising his freedom of the press. He was no professional newsman. The same is conspicuously true of James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, who anonymously printed the Federalist papers in various newspapers. They were not part of institutional press at the time of the founding. Just try to imagine it. George Washington holding a press conference before the White House press corps precursor, before it was even white. Any questions? He hears, yes, this is James Madison, Publius. What will be your response to the Whiskey Rebellion? No comment. Next question. Brutus, you're awfully quiet today. It's inconceivable that the ratifying public would have thought that common sense and the Federalist Papers would not be covered by freedom of the press. The proposition that freedom of the press does not create a privileged profession is not at all intended to disparage, but rather to underline the importance of that First Amendment protection. The framers knew full well the dangers against which they were protecting. In the late 17th century, it was a crime in England to publish news without first obtaining a license whether the news was true or false. The Huron on freedom of the speech and press. Authors and printers of, of obnoxious works in those days in England were hung, quartered, mutilated, exposed in the pillory, flogged, or simply fined and imprisoned, according to the temper of the judges, and the works themselves were burned by the common hangman. This law was followed by the Stamp Act, which placed a duty on all newspapers and advertisements. According to James Madison, the First Amendment freedom of the press was understood to fit, pro prohibit precisely those types of laws that imposed restraints on publications or imposed ex post penalties on them. The security of the freedom of the press requires then that it be exempt not only from previous restraint of the executive as in Great Britain, but from legislative restraint also and for this exemption to be effectual must be an exemption not only from the previous inspection of licensures, but from the subject, subsequent penalty of laws. <clears throat> in England, such laws had been regularly applied against individual printers and writers, not just institutional press. In fact, the strongest opposition in the free press in England came from the governing classes. In other words, the elite. <coughs> Excuse me. The idea that the First Amendment then was designed to protect only an institutional elite has it backwards. The history of press regulation in the American colonies reveals early prosecutions that provide support for Berger's interpretation. A printer was arrested in Virginia for publishing the laws of that colony without an appropriate license. He probably should have read the law before he published it. <laughs> Governor of Virginia. few years prior had expressed the sentiment, I thank God that we have no free schools nor printing, and I hope we shall not have these hundred years, for learning has brought disobedience and heresy and sex, sex, S-E-C-T-S, into the world. 
the the first newspaper in the colonies was suppressed after the first issue because it mentioned the Indian Wars. And that raises the question, at what point does printing make one part of the institutional press? If the press's institution view prevails, is the printer of a first, amendment, a first edition of a newspaper or periodical part of that institutional press or just an aspirant? If not a member, then how many issues does the printer have to issue before being admitted into the protected class? If one issue is not enough, might we not as well? If one issue is enough, then let's go back to Berger's view that the freedom of the press protects everyone who seeks to circulate a view or a report, not just those who do so at some recognized professional level. Given the early persecutions of individual authors and printers and the First Amendment's role in preventing such prosecutions from going on, it seems implausible that the freedom of the press would only apply to an institutional press. Indeed, the First Amendment, earliest First Amendment cases nowhere suggest that the First Amendment was so limited, for they apply the freedom of the press to individual writers and printers. Cases on that subject, the early ones are uh, collected in the Volokh article I mentioned earlier. The Supreme Court has held that the inherent worth of the speech in terms of its capacity for informing the public does not depend on the identity of its source, whether corporation, association, union, or individual. Bellotti case, 435 U.S. The same value adheres to written expression which serves to inform the public no matter its source. In other words, we do not change freedom of the speech, the freedom of the press, depending upon the source's characteristics, its subscribers, or its ratings. CNN should breathe a sigh of relief. Freedom of the speech or of the press the grammatical structure of the First Amendment also confirms Berger's interpretation of the press as written dissemination of information or opinion by anyone, not just the institutional press. It makes sense that the amendment, which refers to the freedom of speech or of the press within the same clause, would extend both rights to everyone who might speak or write. Adopting the press as institution interpretation would require the strange assumption that the framers used speech and press much differently. One to categorize the type of freedom protected and the other to delineate the persons protected by freedom. Given the history of contemporaneous constitutions protecting every citizen's right to speak, to write, or to publish, this assumption required by the press's institution view seems even more strange. Justice Scalia called attention to this strangeness in his concurrence in Citizens United. It is passing strange to interpret the phrase, the freedom of speech or of the press, to mean not everyone's right to speak or publish, but rather everyone's right to speak or the institutional press's right to publish. A potential objection to Berger's interpretation of the press is that it would render the freedom of the press superfluous, for anything it protects would already be protected by the freedom of speech. Berger answered that question and provided some historical context. The speech clause standing alone and I'm quoting Berger now, may be viewed as a protection of the liberty to express ideas and beliefs, while the press clause focuses specifically on the liberty to disseminate expression broadly, comprehends every sort of publication which affords a vehicle of information and opinion. Lovell B. Griffin. Yet there is no fundamental distinction between expression and dissemination, the liberty encompassed by the press clause, although complementary to and a natural extension of speech clause liberty, merited special mention simply because it had been more often the object of official restraints. Soon after the invention of the printing press, English and continental monarchs, fearful of the power implicit in its use and the threat to establishment thought and order, political and religious, devised restraints such as licensing, censors, indices of prohibited books, and prosecutions for seditious libel, which generally were unknown in the pre-printing stress era. Official restrictions were the official response to the new disquieting idea that this invention would provide a means for mass communication. And that again is from Bellotti Berger's concurrence. It may well be that we have erred in dividing the speech and press clauses. In the First Amendment, it reads like one clause, the freedom of speech or of the press, the freedom of speech or of the press. When we read this complete clause as protecting the individual right to disseminate ideas to the public, 
it makes sense that the framers would have included the complementary concepts of speaking and writing. It's unlikely that the public in 1791 understood the freedom of the press in the broad way we understand it today, and therefore it would have been perfectly sensible to explicitly protect both spoken and written expression in the First Amendment. In fact, of speech and press, the founding generation more often emphasized the freedom of the press than the freedom of speech. This is reversed today. A recent poll found that 47% of Americans named freedom of speech as their most important freedom. 1% named freedom of the press. Only 14% of Americans could even name freedom of the press as a freedom protected by the First Amendment. But to a founding generation troubled by British regulation of the use of the printing press, the liberty of the press was conspicuously important. It was through the use of the press that Protestants spread the Reformation to change the face of religion in Europe. It was the printing press that enabled Thomas Paine to reach a vast portion of the Americans living at the time with his earlier cited pamphlet, The Crying British Rule. It was with the press, with presses, that the Federalists and Anti-Federalists conducted a widely followed debate on the merits of the new Constitution. In Federalist number 84, Hamilton responds to the anti-Federalist objection to the lack of a Bill of Rights in the Constitution, and in so doing, he discussed only one specific liberty, suggesting the importance of that liberty, and that one liberty was, you guessed it, freedom of the press. Likewise, in 1774, Congress sent a letter to the inhabitants of Quebec, Continental Congress, a letter to the inhabitants of Quebec attempting to enlist their support against the British. This was a year before we took a slight change in strategy and just invaded Canada. The, the letter lauded various rights enjoyed by Americans. It contained no mention of the freedom of press, but it, a, a speech, but it had quite a bit to say about the freedom of the press. The last right we shall mention in regards to freedom of the press. The importance of this consists, besides the advancement of truth, science, morality, and arts, in general, its diffusion of liberal sentiments on the administration of government, its ready communication of thoughts between subjects and its consequential promotion of union among them, whereby oppressive officers are shamed or intimidated into more honorable and just modes of conducting affairs. That's from appeal to the inhabitants of Quebec from the journals of the Continental Congress. Given the importance of the press at the time, it's no surprise to find written expression explicitly protected in the First Amendment. Further, the content of the appeal to the inhabitants of Quebec illustrates once more the extension of the protection of the freedom of press, not to a professional reporter class, but to all who communicate through that technology. We might perhaps think of the professional journalist as advancing the truth, but the advancement of science, morality, and arts in general suggests the products of a much larger body of communicators. Thus, it should be apparent that the freedom of the press protects not only newspaper personnel, but scientists, moralists, and all engaged in all arts. But returning to the superfluity question, it seems most likely that the public would have understood the press to be referring to writings by all citizens, not just to those of an elite group, which frankly did not even exist in 1789. The applicability, and this is my third part then, would be the applicability of the press to modern technologies. Two further questions arise for the originalist who adopts the liberty for all interpretation of the press. First, does the freedom of press protect only the actual production of written material? And second, if the press refers to the printing press, does the freedom of the press also protect blogs and televisions and other forms of communication? that do not originate from a printing press? Well, the answer to the first question is surely no. The Supreme Court has consistently held that the freedom of the press protects more than the mere writing of a material. Liberty of circulation is as essential to the freedom of the press as liberty of publishing. Indeed, without circulation, the publication would be of little value. That's ex parte Jackson from 1877. As the court has further explained, the freedom of the press would be meaningless without the included rights to write, publish, and circulate. Thus, Justice Scalia wrote in McConnell versus FEC, 
licensed printers, and it matters little whether authors are still free to write. Restrict the sale of books, and it matters little who prints them. What good is the right to print books without a right to buy books from authors? Or the right to publish newspapers without the right to pay the delivery? However, the breadth of activity protected by the freedom of the press created in the First Amendment does not suggest that that freedom affords special protection <coughs> excuse me, to a universe of acts by members of the professional media, which would not be protected if engaged in by others. It is the excessive claims of such protection that first brought this subject to the front of my mind. It has become commonplace for members of the professional media to suppose that their special freedom enjoyed as members of the press includes freedom from obligation to answer subpoenas, testify in court, or put up with all sorts of things that common people must endure. A few years ago in Washington, D.C., a special prosecutor was leading a grand jury investigation of the suspected unlawful disclosure of the identity of a covert CIA agent by high government officials. As part of the investigation, the grand jury issued subpoenas to a New York Times reporter named Judith Miller, along with a correspondent for Time Magazine and the corporate entity producing Time. The Henry grand jury subpoenaed Judith Miller, 438 F3rd. It was undisputed that Miller had obtained information concerning the idea, excuse me, the identity of a high government official who had leaked the name of a CIA agent. Miller, however, refused to provide her evidence to the grand jury claiming that her information had come from a confidential informant and arguing that the First Amendment freedom of the press created a privilege for reporters to maintain the confidentiality of their sources. The unanimous panel of the D.C. Circuit, consisting of Judges Sintel, Henderson, and Tatel, rejected the concept that the proposition that the concept of freedom of the press contemplates protection beyond those applications properly classified as the preparation and circulation of publications. I stand by that today. Not only did neither Miller nor anyone in her support ever come up with any historic evidence that the concept of the free press at the time of the framing, or for that matter long after, included a broad protection of activities that would be unprotected if conducted by anyone other than a professional journalist. But as we noted in the Miller case, the question was definitively answered by the Supreme Court in Brandsburg versus Hayes. In Brandsburg, as in Miller, a journalist who conceitedly had knowledge of criminal activity resisted a subpoena under the claim that the First Amendment provided protection to a journalist against the revelation of his sources. As we later echoed in Miller, the Supreme Court held that there is no such protection within the concept of First Amendment freedom of the press. Justice White, writing for the court, declared that it is clear that the First Amendment does not invalidate every incidental burdening of the press that may result from the enforcement of civil or criminal statutes of general applicability. Under prior cases, however, valid law serving substantial public interest may be enforced against the press as against others, despite the possible burden that may be imposed. Justice White went on to drive the point home. The court has emphasized that the publisher of a newspaper has no special amenity, immunity from the application of general law. He has no special privilege to invade the rights and liberties of others. And I cannot leave the discussion of Brandsburg without recalling one other pithy quotation from Justice White's opinion for the majority. We cannot seriously entertain the notion that the First Amendment protects a newspaper and newsman's agreement to conceal the criminal conduct of his source or evidence thereof on the theory that it is better to write about crime than to do something about it. In another case involving a claim to special rights for the institutional press, Flint v. Rumsfeld, 355 F3rd in my court, the publisher of Hustler magazine asserted a First Amendment right for, quote, legitimate press representatives to travel with the military and be accommodated and otherwise facilitated by the military in their reporting efforts during combat. We rejected that proposition, holding that there is nothing that we have found in the Constitution, American history, or our case law to support that claim. The plaintiff appellant in Flint relied on Richmond Newspapers, Inc. v. Virginia, in which the Supreme Court recognized, in a plurality opinion, the constitutional right of access to criminal trials for the news media. However, the Plurality in Richmond did not recognize a special status for the press under the First Amendment standing alone, but grounded its decision in large part 
on the openness mandated by the public trial provision of the Sixth Amendment. It was only after discussion of the open trial concept that the court held that the right to attend criminal trials is implicit in the guarantees of the First Amendment. Even then, the court went on in the same sentence to state, with, without the freedom to attend such trials, which people have exercised for centuries, important aspects of freedom of speech and of the press could be eviscerated. Thus, even the plurality in Richmond newspapers did not accord a special right to the press, but only as representatives of the public, so that persons protected more by freedom of the press than so that those persons are not a special class protected more by freedom of the press than any other person. Now, admittedly, Justices Brennan and Marshall would have find, found the right of access to criminal proceedings in the First Amendment of its own force, but even they count to their concurrence in terms of a right of First Amendment public access rather than a special status for a privileged group called the press. I turn finally to the, again to the question concerning new technologies and the First Amendment. If we take as given that the Constitution means that the ratifying public would have originally understood its words to mean, perhaps the freedom of the press only extends to works produced by a printing press. Needless to say, the ratifying public in 1791 had no conception of iPads, computers, televisions. The question then is, what does the originalist do when applying constitutional tech text to new technologies, and the answer is no different than our usual method of applying the Constitution. We determine how the technology fits into the text, sometimes by analogizing to technology used in 1791. The issue arises in the Fourth Amendment context, where the Supreme Court has applied the Fourth Amendment to dog sniffs, infrared scanners, and other techniques unknown to the founding generation. When the Constitution allocated war powers between the Congress and the executive, there was no Air Force. And yet the courts have had no difficulty in treating the president, commander-in-chief of the armed forces, as including that branch of the service. See Reed v. Covert. In the First Amendment context, Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes set out a relevant definition of the press. The press, in its historic connotation, comprehends every sort of publication which affords a vehicle of information and opinion. That's level. Every publication, every sort of publication which affords a vehicle of information and opinion. Even the ratifying public probably did not consider the freedom of the press limited to works produced on a printing press. It strains credulity to suggest that people in 1791 would have considered the freedom of the press not to protect handwritten works, for example. In 1769, Blackstone wrote that every free man has an undoubted right to lay what sentiments he pleases before the public. To forbid this is to destroy the freedom of the press. Therefore, as Chief Justice Berger wrote, it is not strange that press, the word for what was then the sole means of broad dissemination of ideas and news, would be used to describe the freedom to communicate with a large unseen audience, again from Bellotti. Extension of the press to include new forms of communication recognizes that freedom of speech and the press are complementary ideas contained in the same clause of the First Amendment and serve together to protect an individual right to disseminate ideas. Thus, protecting online posts, on-air statements, and other new forms of publishing technology is consistent with an originalist interpretation of the First Amendment. These new technologies make it even easier for all citizens to exercise their freedom of the press, ensuring that it remains the true friend and firmest support of civil liberties for these United States. In closing, I recall that in the wake of the Judith Miller decision, Joel Roberts of CBS stated that, read the other two judges, that's Sintel and Henderson, you might think that journalists have the same First Amendment protection as sock puppets. Well, since both Judge Henderson and I had written in the firm belief that journalists have the same First Amendment protections as all other Americans, the opinion of the CBS newsman must be that not only do the nobles of the press have special rights, but the rest of us are nothing but sock puppets. So I will end with a comment directed toward Mr. Roberts, CBS, and their colleagues. The inclusion of the words the press in the First Amendment does not confer upon you a title of nobility. You have the protection of the First Amendment rights encompassed in the First Amendment, but so do the rest of us. You are not nobles, and we are not sock puppets.
Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a tour de raison. Let's now uh, open it up for questions. We've got a few minutes, and if you could wait for the microphone to get to you. Uh, do we have microphones here? Uh, I don't. Oh, yes. Yes. Right up there. Um, you see? Yes. Okay. And identify yourself and any affiliation you may have. And that goes for you too, Ron. Thank you, Roger. Uh, Ron Collins, University of Washington School of Law. Judge, thank you for your uh, remarks. I have a question. Mindful of what you've said, um, what do you think about the constitutionality of the Supreme Court and the White House limiting uh, access to the institutionalized press. Do you think that abridges the First Amendment? I suppose that depends in part on what access they're limiting. Uh, as a practical matter, it is not possible for everyone to get in the White House briefing room. So I think it would analogize to something like the Richmond News case where the court perceived the news media as proxies for the public, and that did the public was not barred, but the public could not all get in for the trial. Today, there's less problem with the limiting of access to the professional media than ever before, since everything at, of great import that happens, not everything of great import, so much is covered by the televised media that people can see it whether they belong to the professional media or not. They don't get to go, but they at least can see it. So I don't think there's any great restriction there. I don't think anything in the First Amendment forbids the president or the Congress from communicating with members of the professional media. I simply don't think that the rights protected by the First Amendment are limited only to that group. Other questions? Yes, right here. And, and if uh, could we also send a microphone in the back? My name is Stephen Shore. My question is about embedded journalists covering conflicts. Could a private citizen insist that the military allow him or her to be embedded, or is the military fully within its constitutional rights to limit this embedding embedment to recognized journalists? Well, we held in Flint v. Rumsfeld that the, uh, the military was not obligated to extend it to anybody. Uh, we said that perhaps Flint had a right to go down to the battlefield if he wanted to, but that the military was not required to extend it to anybody. And he was presenting himself as what he called a legitimate journalist, and I guess he's as legitimate as a lot of them. But uh, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that they have to take a civilian along, whether he's a journalist or a plumber. There in the back. Uh, thanks to Cato. My name is Steve Luckett. I uh, study IR here in the city and uh, I'm a longtime journalist in the interest of full disclosure. Uh, my late boss, uh, Tim Russert, was within the orbit of your um, uh, 438, the Miller case, sir. Could you uh, speak up, please? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, a couple of questions. I guess the first would be, um, given the crisis in the courts of retirements and such, what are your thoughts of, uh, you were confirmed unanimously, Judge, a uh, generation ago. Only after a long wait. What, what do you, well, to that end, then, what are your thoughts of the crisis of the court and the, uh, the, the burdens that some of the older or senior uh, judges are having to, uh, to bear in the different circuits? Um, your thoughts, likewise, on uh, cameras and the high court and whether that might lead to posturing by attorneys. God forbid that should ever uh, be the case. Hmm. And um, I guess the pretty complex, the third, of the last of the three, the pretty complex uh, intersection of uh, our need to disseminate information, but still uh, holding to some level of uh, very high scrutiny um, and, uh, and reservation regarding the disclosure of classified information, however acquired. And thank you, sir. Oh, and, and, and a fourth question. Will there be... Did you hear the part about not making a speech? Well, no, 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 no speeches, all questions. You might find this last question especially rich, though. Will there be uh, an updated version of uh, Judge Dave and the rainbow people. Thanks. Perhaps. Uh, <laughs> we are under discussions about putting out another edition of Judge Dave. The text would be essentially the same, perhaps with some different introduction and uh, epilogue. That was the easiest question. 
Now, let's see. The next issue is what do I think of cameras in the courtroom? Would it lead to posturing by attorneys? I would say it would lead to more posturing by attorneys. <laughs> With respect to the burdens on senior judges, I'm carrying a full caseload. I don't have to. Judge Ginsburg is carrying some cases, and he doesn't have to. We, some uh, not very well-informed writer wrote in some newspaper that Senior judges do less work for the same pay. In actual fact, we do our work for no pay. We get our retirement income whether we work or not. Uh, now, back to your greater question, there are some courts around the country, not including ours, that are having something of a crisis. The border courts, particularly on the district level, really need help. I don't know anything else I can say but that. They have, they have loads of trial cases, uh, border crossing cases, drug cases that are more than they can handle. They need help. Now, there was some other question you threw in there. I forgot what it was. That's, this quota is met. Okay, that got him. Randy Barnett over here, who, by the way, was the, was it the eighth uh, Simon lecture that you gave, I believe? Uh, So. I I don't know which one it was, but it was a great pleasure to do it. Uh, Judge, uh, in your speech today and also in your Noel Canning opinion, uh, you have expressly used or employed the original public meaning uh, approach to constitutional interpretation and did, did so you know, quite admirably uh, in the way you went about doing it. I'm just wondering how you see uh, your colleagues' uh, receptivity uh, to this approach to constitutional interpretation now that it's, uh, it's really identified and identifiable as a distinctive approach um, that even has a name that you could use. I wrote a letter to a publication once where I said it didn't need a name, that it was the method of interpreting the Constitution in the early years. Nobody thought about doing it other than trying to do what the words meant. Uh, with the drift of years, it became necessary to name it. And I think with the drift of more years, it's gotten more and more returned to the idea that our purpose in interpreting the Constitution is to determine what the Constitution says and what it means. Uh, I can't give you any kind of quantification, but I do think things are better in that direction than they were 30 years ago. Further questions? Ah, right here, Ilya. Uh, Ilya Soman, George Mason University. One of the reasons over the last few years why people have tried to argue that the press clause just protects a special institutionalized press is so as to be able on the one hand say that you can have campaign finance regulations restricting speech by commercial corporations or even denying commercial corporations all rights. But on the other hand, the press clause would protect the uh, sort of the, the real media, so to speak, from censorship. I wonder if you have any thoughts on sort of that use of the distinction and, you know, the problems it poses. I think you're correct that that is a reason why some of the people in the media push for the distinction that isn't there. That is, that the press means a category of people rather than a method of communication. I don't see it would have been at all the intent of the framers to say that those who are the professional journalists can print and publish whatever they want to, but we can restrict anybody else from paying for a print shop to uh, put out their views. I think that's... uh, just one more reason why this can't possibly mean the uh, institutional press. Right up here in the back. One more question after this. Uh, there does seem Could to you be... you identify oh, yourself? Oh, David Brazell. There does seem to be a distinction uh, between the press as the institution and the rest of us when it comes to uh, publishing uh, classified information of the government. I wonder if you could speak to that. I don't think there should be a distinction between the institutional press and the rest of us on printing classified information. I don't see the distinction. Uh, You can get back into the whole fight over how classification should be done. Is there too much classification? But I don't think the institutional press has any different right under the law than anybody else. Okay. One last question. Uh, Wally, yes. Walter Olson from the Cato Institute. Um, On cameras in the courtroom, as one who agrees with you, uh, Your Honor, about the dangers of posturing, uh, 
But as one who also thinks that the pressure is such that it will be hard to resist it uh, indefinitely, what do you think of the idea of delayed release in which um, uh, on the uh, argument of exposing injustices or, or, or miscarriages of justice, uh, the tapes of the proceedings are released two months later or sometime around the uh, appellate consideration or, or 20 years later? Perhaps without a very explicit rationale, that bothers me a whole lot less. But I'm not sure that I could give you an explicit rationale for that, whether it should be 20 years later or 20 months later. The longer it is, the less it bothers me. Make sure uh, before you leave to pick up a copy of the new Cato Supreme Court Review, uh, which has last year's Simon Lecture by Paul Clement. Uh, We're now going to have a fine reception, which we invite you all to enjoy. But let's have another round of applause for Judge Sentai. Thank you.